My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 23rd official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And as we're coming off of the heels of that horrific and bloody event and demonstration in Charlottesville, Virginia this past weekend, I wanted to focus this week on the political. And I wanted to discuss how we think about Charlottesville, how we can propose some solutions for moving forward, and how we can place this event in the context of our larger political rhetoric, which I think we ought to change and amend going forward if we're really serious about easing and quelling racial tensions and really promoting cooperation amongst communities, amongst races, amongst political parties, or whatever the dividing characteristic may be. And so I want to thank you for tuning in to this 23rd official episode. I hope that you will take something from this. And if you feel compelled, I hope that you will engage in a dialogue in the comments section under this video. As I was watching the tweets and Facebook posts come through, I was struck by the number of people who tried to create a comparison between 2017 and the 1950s. And so I've seen and come across many tweets and posts where people are saying, Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, or can you believe that this is happening in 2017? Or I feel like I'm in 1950. Why is this happening now? And I was struck by that because it reminded me just how powerful and salient Uh, that language around us being post-racial and about progress, how that sort of swept over and tried to cover up some of the very real problems that we face in our country. And so if you look at sort of the start of the Obama presidency, you know, you begin to see a lot of people pushing this post-racial ideology. We are one. We're becoming colorblind. It's not about the color of your skin anymore. It's about the content of your character. And that's the type of messaging that we tried to push uh, into the mainstream. And for many, it made sense. I mean, if you looked at the Voting Rights Act, for example, in 1965, and then you looked and fast forward to 2009, you would say, wow, we went from Rosa Parks sitting on the back of the bus, people getting sprayed with fire hoses to a black president. That's a testament to the progress we made as a country, and that solidifies this belief that time heals all wounds, that if you just sit back and wait, things will ultimately get better. And it's my belief that uh, the initiation of the Obama presidency sort of allowed people to double down in this belief that only time can really solve these problems, and it's going to get better with time. And look, you know, almost 50 years after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, we have a black president, and look at how far we've come as a nation. And so that's the the rhetoric that we use, but I'm of the belief that time doesn't heal all wounds and that if we sit back idly waiting for time to change things, we're never going to see the progress that we want uh, in society. And another rhetoric beyond the uh, 2017, how could this happen, that I saw across the news feeds, I also was reminded of that rhetoric used by others that said, you know what? These old racist backwards people will eventually die and their ideas will die with them. And then at that time, we'll be able to progress again, this idea that time will heal everything. If you just wait, these older racist people who are um, spouting these terrible uh, beliefs and sentiments, they'll eventually die. And those ideas that they have with them during their time will go with them. That's what we often hear. Um, But I think that that idea and that theory has been debunked to an extent 
when you begin to look at Charlottesville and when you begin to look at the participants, uh, particularly in that alt-right, white supremacist, white nationalist rally, if you look at the photos, you see a lot of young white men and women participating in the activities. You see, for example, uh, this just was just released that a student from the University of Nevada, Reno, was identified as one of the participants. Uh, so Twitter came together and they were able to identify at least one of the members of that rally at that event as uh, someone who was in college. And we also know that the man who ran his car into the crowd that ultimately killed one and left many critically injured, that he was only 20 years old. And so this belief that these ideas of racism and these racist sentiments, that they're only confined to older generations who grew up in that time and that they'll fade away, I hope that that's been debunked as you begin to see that some of the most ardent and active participants in this rally were young people, were people in the millennial generation. And so this idea that time heals all wounds, that the older race people are going to die off and things will get better, I hope that this event in Charlottesville just reminds us once again that time is not going to heal all wounds and that these uh, sentiments and ideologies are actually passed down uh, generationally. And beyond being passed down generationally, we also see that there are online forums that perpetuate and allow for this radicalization to take place so that if you have access to internet and a computer screen, you can be exposed to these sentiments and you can internalize them and you can then, as we saw in Charlottesville, begin to act on them in very real ways that have a direct impact on people. But if we are clear then that time does not heal all wounds, then we must move to an approach that states that faith without works is dead. James chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 in the Bible, it notes, if one of you tells him, go in peace, stay warm and well-fed, but does not provide for his physical needs, what good is that? So too, faith by itself, if it is not complemented by action, is dead. And I love that, that passage around faith without works being dead because it really provides a framework for how we ought to think about race relations and race tensions in the United States. We have to move from this idea that time will heal all wounds, and we have to start moving towards a more proactive approach that says, you cannot simply believe and hope that things will change, but that you actually have to start taking action to be that change that you want to see. And as we begin to think about how we take that action, uh, one solution that I don't think that we talk about enough is the importance of having all races play a part, particularly in this case, white people playing a part in helping to eradicate racism and white supremacist ideology from our society. I'll further explain this uh, point by leveraging a Huffington Post Black Voices article by Rahel Gabriez. She notes a 2014 study conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute, which showed that 91% of the average white American's closest friends and family members are white, and just 1% are black. While black Americans tend uh, to have a more diverse social network, they don't fare much better. The average African American has 83% black confidants, 8% white confidants, 2% Latino confidants, zero Asian confidants, and 3% mixed-race confidants. One of the most glaring statistics from the study showed that when asked to name their closest friends and family members, 75% of white Americans didn't name even one person who was not white. So what this quote reveals to me is that when it comes to our interpersonal relationships across racial lines, we often are insulated. We often socialize and communicate and interact and live and cohabitate with people who are of the same race as us. And so what this means from a racial tension and, and a racial or eradication of racism, what this means to me is that we have to have white people also play a part 
in helping to rid white supremacist ideology, white nationalist ideology from our society. Because if white people oftentimes are only interacting with people of their race, just as other races are, are doing as well, then that means that calls by minorities, people of color, for racial inclusion and racial progress are only going to go so far. If I'm telling you that we have to fight for equality, you know, oftentimes uh, that message is only being heard by people in my social group, by people who I spend the most time with. And as the study shows, it's highly probable that the people that I'm spending the most time with are going to be people of my own race. And so if my messaging is only confined to those groups, there's no way in which I can actively play a part, for the most part, in challenging some of that racism that we're seeing at the highest levels. And so if you're telling me that white Americans are insulated and that their closest friends are of the same race and that black Americans are insulated and that many of their close relationships are with people of the same race, then what this means is that we need white people to start actively playing a part in challenging the comments that you come across at the dinner table during Thanksgiving or challenging those offhand comments that can come about in a car ride or in your dorm room or in that group chat that you have. It's about really standing up and, and taking a stand on some of the most pressing issues, and it's about calling out people within your race to help them to understand why the sentiments that they hold and the beliefs that they hold about certain groups of people are wrong and are damaging. We have to stop looking at calls for racial progress to only be the burden of people of color, and we have to start looking at the reality of the situation that we are all so segregated that oftentimes the people who can have the most impact in pushing the message for racial equality forward is not always going to be a person of color, but it's going to oftentimes be a white person challenging some of those sentiments that may appear within their networks of predominantly white individuals. And so I think that that's at a high level how we can start to begin to invoke some change is by allowing white people to see that you also have a part to play in this and that you also have a role to play in ensuring that we are challenging day by day bigotry, prejudice, racism, and ideologies that perpetuate ideas of racial superiority and racial inferiority. But this you know, belief that I share is not just one that I'm spouting um, randomly. It's, it's actually one that's backed by research. James Farron and David Layton in 2014, they do a study that looks at how to effectively promote inter-ethnic cooperation in a society. And they give a couple of ways and solutions in which we can allow for better inter-ethnic cooperation. And one of their findings or solutions is what they term in-group policing equilibria. And this is basically a situation in which individuals ignore transgressions by members of the other group, correctly expecting that the culprits will be identified and sanctioned by their own ethnic brethren. So what this basically means is that if you want to be serious about promoting inter-ethnic cooperation, then it requires you, as a member of your own race, to call out the problematic behavior and sentiments and language that you see within your own race. And in doing that, you create a culture where other groups will realize that someone's racist or bigoted comments will be checked by people within their racial group, which will then allow for uh, some cooperation as the other group now understands that the group that committed the wrong or who said the horrific statement that they're not the norm, that they're not being praised or celebrated for that, but that they're actually being challenged, being called out for that. Speech and behavior uh, that oftentimes can be detrimental 
harmful and even abusive to other people. So when you think about the fact that we are so insulated as racial groups, and when you also look at the findings of that aforementioned study that shows that one way in which we can seek cooperation is by holding people in our groups accountable, which sends cues to other groups that we're serious about promoting cooperation and inclusion, then that should give you all a strong belief that one of the ways in which we fight and end racism is by having white people take one apart and, and challenging some of the beliefs they come across uh, within their networks. And this is not to say that all white people are racist. This is not to say that um, every white group is racist. But it is to say that if we are serious about challenging and calling out those instances where bigotry and prejudice and hatred can materialize, that will do a whole lot of good in helping us to get to a place where we can coexist, where we can celebrate our differences, and where we can understand that hatred, bigotry, and sort of inflammatory language will not be tolerated and not be accepted or held up or celebrated in society. And so I think that that's how we acknowledge and take action, you know, because it's not enough just to have faith, but we need work as well to complement that faith if we really want to bring about change. And I think that that's one way in which we can do that. But then as we begin to think about Charlottesville, we also have to realize that this is not specific to Charlottesville. This is not specific to 2017, but that this is indicative of a problem that we've had throughout the uh, inception and throughout the entirety of our nation. From the start of our nation, from the very, very start, there was a clear imbalance in power. We see this imbalance in 1776 when Thomas Jefferson is stating that all men are created equal while at the same time owning slaves. We see this imbalance in 1787 where we're trying to figure out how to apportion seats to the House of Representatives under our new constitution, and we have both sides agreeing on the three-fifths compromise, which basically says that African slaves for population counting will only be considered three-fifths of a person, and that's how we'll determine how many representatives come from those southern states. So we see the imbalance in 1787. We also see it almost 80 years later in 1863, where Abraham Lincoln has to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, an executive order freeing slaves in rebellious states, so, so slaves in southern states. We then see it again in 1865, where we have to once again reaffirm equality through an amendment to the Constitution abolishing slavery. Fast forward to 1898, you have Plessy v. Ferguson, which promotes that separate but equal. 1954, we have Brown v. Board of Education, which strikes down separate but equal, and we're still trying to fight for equality. Almost 200 plus years after the Declaration of Independence in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, we are still trying to codify in law the fact that people are equal and deserve equal treatment and equal protection under the law. And even when you look at something as recent as the Voting Rights Act of 1965, it's only been 52 years since the passage of that law. And we've already seen the many ways in which it's been dismantled already. It's only been in effect for 52 years, and we've seen how over the course of that time, we worked to dismantle some of the protections. And so we have in this country a long history of racism, a long history of promoting through our acts and through our laws, beliefs of racial superiority and racial inferiority. And we see that it has a direct impact on how we view ourselves in the nation. Around the time of the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, uh, they often, as they were deliberating and thinking about their strategy, they referenced the Dow test. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the Dow test was a test that was done to show or used to highlight the significant harm that can come from segregationist policies. And they basically had young children go into a room and you saw students across uh, different races saying that 
the white doll was smart and pretty and how the black doll was bad and ugly. And so you begin to see how this type of thinking and this imbalance in power becomes internalized and ingrained in our culture so much so that at a toddler's age, they can begin to realize and take cues to understand that they are supposed to believe that white is right and that black is bad. And so you have all of these different dynamics taking place. And more recently, Joy DeGruy, she's a psychologist, she has a seminar that she conducted with a group that's on YouTube. I would encourage you all to check it out. Her name is Joy DeGruy, D-E-G-R-U-Y. And she's basically talking about the history of uh, racism and slavery in our country. And as she's talking to the group, she asked them if they wanted to switch places with black people in America and none of the white people in the audience raised their hand. So if you look at our history, you know, from the different dates that I threw out to you, you know, documenting the Declaration of Independence, the Three-Fifths Compromise, to conversations around the Dow Test where these entrenched structures and policies are being internalized by people, to even more recently a psychologist asking people would they change places with a black person and them saying no highlights to me the fact that we understand that there is an imbalance in power in this country that has been at the inception of our nation and that we have to acknowledge if we're going to understand why the events unfolded the way they did in Charlottesville. And so if you follow my premise and my belief that there's an imbalance in power, then you will understand why we are starting to see so much vitriolic anger towards what people perceive as loss aversion going forward. So for those of you who aren't familiar, beinghuman.com, a website does a great write-up on this term, loss aversion, is a popular term in psychology, and it's about documenting how we hate to lose things or to, to feel like we're losing something. And they note, imagine two people in the same general financial situation. One loses $50, the second finds $50. The first person should lose about as much satisfaction as the second person gains, right? Actually, it doesn't quite work out like that, thanks to a phenomenon known as loss aversion. First discovered by Daniel Kahneman and his associates, loss aversion is the human tendency to strongly prefer avoiding a loss to receiving a gain. So why are we so averse to loss? The site notes, like many cognitive biases, it conferred a big evolutionary advantage. All organisms survive by maximizing opportunities and minimizing threats. We're hardwired to try to hold on to what we have in terms of natural selection, it makes sense to try to avoid loss at all costs. So if you follow my premise that there has been an imbalance in power since the start of this nation, and then you have an understanding of the psychological phenomenon known as loss aversion, you will begin to understand why people are responding in Charlottesville and across the country in the way that they are to what they perceive as a loss. If you accept my premise that there's an imbalance of power, that means that any attempts to balance and level the playing field to create some balance in that power structure is going to be perceived as a loss to those people in the predominant majority group who now feel like they're going to lose something or certain rights. And so when we look at a Charlottesville, we have to look at it from the context of a group feeling like they're losing certain advantages. They're losing a certain amount of power. And it becomes so severe that they begin to believe that their very own survival is at risk and is at stake if this is able to go through as planned. So if you're able to live in an America where the majority is going to become non-white, does that, as a white nationalist or white supremacist, cause you to feel like your very existence is at stake, that your very survival is at risk? And so if you believe that, and if loss aversion takes hold of you, then it's clear to see why people are reacting in such violent ways. Brian Resnick of Vox, he writes an article in January 
of 2017, right after the inauguration of Trump, where he cites the work of Yale psychologist Jennifer Richardson. He notes Richardson's studies on interracial interactions had taught her that when people are in the majority, the sense of their race is dormant, as in it's asleep, it's not existent, it's not apparent. But the prospect of being in the minority can suddenly make white identity and all the historical privilege that comes with it salient. And she guessed the prospect of losing majority status was likely to make people perhaps unconsciously uneasy. In other words, she wondered if white people would read the news of a coming minority-majority shift as a threat, a threat powerful enough to change their thoughts and behavior. In the years since, Richardson has tried to answer this question with the trove of experimental research. What she's found is both unsettling and crucial to understanding politics in the era of President Donald Trump. Her research and the research of many other social scientists studying the rise of Trump, Brexit, and other examples of nationalistic backlash around the world points to how the politics of inclusion will be challenged in the days ahead. Perhaps one day social scientists will figure out how to get people of different backgrounds to live among one another and not be afraid. But for now, the perceived threat of demographic change is making voters fearful and in turn giving power to politicians who implicitly and explicitly stoke that fear. So I know that was a longer quote, but what Richardson is essentially saying is that when you are in the majority, you have no real reason to think about your race. Uh, because when you're in the majority, you don't have to think about or, or worry about those things. And so her argument is that once that majority status is at risk, you then begin to realize your race and the significance of the threat of this other group taking over, that it causes you to act and behave in certain ways, whether consciously or unconsciously. And I think that that's a very real point as we look at it in the age of Donald Trump and how Donald Trump came to power. Donald Trump came to power, if you remember, uh, with the birther movement, where he challenged the legitimacy of President Obama um, of his citizenship and of whether he was born in the United States. He can be seen on news networks um, talking about how he has investigators in Hawaii and how you would not believe what they're finding and what information they've been able to collect. We now know that that was a total lie, uh, that he had no information, that it was falsehoods that he perpetuated to sort of stoke this idea of uh, a dominant group and a minority group of insiders and of outsiders and of how to reconcile with uh, the notion of a black president and with the notion of uh, someone of the non-majority group being in power. And so when you see how a Donald Trump can come to, to fame in the political sense uh, from this type of rhetoric, then it shouldn't be uh, too surprising to learn that he adopted these similar stances throughout the presidential campaign where he's attacking different groups. He's you know talking about sort of illegal immigrants as a threat. He's talking about taking back the country. But don't take my word for it. Take the word of former KKK leader David Duke, who was president at the Charlottesville demonstration on Saturday. And he was speaking to news reporters where he basically said, we are fulfilling the promises of Donald Trump. Donald Trump promised us that he would take this country back, and we are with him 100% on those goals. And so it's not just me saying this. You have former leaders of the KKK also saying that the rise of Donald Trump was meant to take the country back and this demonstration today is one way in which we're working to fulfill that promise and so we have a, an environment where the rhetoric has sort of evolved to a point where people realize that words matter and that the president's response to different events matter and that's why there was so much backlash and outrage on both sides of the aisle about the president's response to 
uh, the events and about how he didn't really take a clear and decisive stance against white supremacy, white nationalism, and the rhetoric and bigotry and hatred that was espoused by those groups uh, through that demonstration. And the reason why this is so alarming, and I know people will say, you know, Trump can't win, people will attack him no matter what he does, and there was nothing that he could possibly say that would get people to understand he was doing or saying the right thing at that time. But I think that it's also fair for people to call out how the vague nature of his response has actually worked to empower and embolden attendees of the rally and people within the Unite the Right movement. Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi website, actually celebrated uh, the president's response um, on their website when they noted Trump comments were good. He didn't attack us. He just said the nation should come together. Nothing specific against us. He said that we need to study why people are so angry and implied that there was hate on both sides. There was virtually no counter signaling of us at all. He said he loves us all. Also refused to answer a question about white nationalists supporting him. No condemnation at all. When asked to condemn, he just walked out of the room. So you can throw that argument that, oh, people will attack Trump for whatever he says or does and nothing he ever does is right. But I think that before you launch that uh, counter argument uh, to people who are understandably frustrated with the response, you have to understand where some of that frustration is coming from. It's coming from the fact that a president can open up a pathway for white nationalists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis to believe that they are in good standing, to believe that their behavior wasn't wholeheartedly condemned by the president. And that the fact that that occurred and that that's the reality that we're in warrants people to be frustrated and it warrants us to ask why the president hasn't taken a more direct stance against this and called it out for what it is because the president never hesitates to call out radical Islamic terrorism. He never hesitates to talk about how illegal immigrants are coming in and pillaging our cities. Um, he, he never is at a loss for words, and he actually attacked Obama and Clinton for not being able to, st to say radical Islamic terrorism. And so for someone to be so adamant about calling things for what they are and about being very clear in the language, it just is frustrating that he couldn't find that same harsh, stern rhetoric that he uses against Mitch McConnell, that he uses against Nordstrom when they took away his daughter's clothing line. You know, when he is on Twitter bashing and being stern against other players, you know, it's just confusing to see that lack of engagement around calling this what it is and instead seeing him back down. And some will argue he's doing this primarily because it's his base and he doesn't want to upset them. But whatever the reason may be, it is hypocritical to campaign and, and to on a daily basis tweet about things, but then to be at a loss of words uh, during this particular event. So I say all this to say that we have to stop saying that we can't believe this stuff is happening in 2017. We have to stop with this notion that time will always heal all wounds, that the racist backwards thinking will eventually fade away once these older people who hold these sentiments pass away, because we have to realize that faith without works is dead. And we are so segregated and insulated that the path to real progress will come from people not overlooking racism, bigotry, and prejudice within their own communities and racial groups, but calling it out and challenging it so that it no longer goes unchecked or perceived as the norm. And we also must realize that the imbalance in power, which was cemented at the inception of our nation, has created a dynamic where privilege and power for certain segments of the population have been the norm, and any move to change that and to promote equality for all may ignite sentiments of loss aversion and perceived threats of survival that will cause people to do, say, and act in ways that reveal the darkest, most entrenched beliefs that some hold to this very day. And so you can say love Trump's hate and say we're moving forward, not backwards at these rallies. But you also need to realize that there is power in challenging comments that you may come across at the dinner table, in a car ride, 
in your dorm room or in a group chat because we're going to really be about eradicating racism and really pushing past sentiments that uphold white supremacy and white nationalism. We're going to need white people to step up and begin to challenge the comments that they come across because as the study showed, in order for inter-ethnic cooperation uh, to really be real in a society, one of the ways in which you can do that is by creating a dynamic where other groups understand that problematic, bigoted, um, terrible behavior within a group will not go unchecked, but that it will be challenged, that it will be sanctioned, that it will be pushed back against, that that's the way in which you build cooperation, and that's the way in which you send cues to other groups that you're serious about eradicating and pushing past sentiments that seek to keep people disenfranchised and left out of the system. And so those are my thoughts on Charlottesville. We shouldn't be surprised by this, and we should realize that if we don't take the action that's needed, and have those crucial and critical conversations, it might just get worse. Thanks for tuning into the 23rd official episode of The Riley Rant. Remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant.